All right, if you have a copy of the scriptures, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 13 is where we are in. We're in a series called We Want a King. Uh, we've been looking at the life of King Saul. We're right smack in the middle of the life of King David. We have a few more weeks with David, and then we'll be into uh, looking at the life of King Solomon. One of the cultural values that we have here at Redemption Church uh, is that we take Jesus seriously, uh, but we don't take ourselves too seriously, which fits me just fine. I appreciate that. Uh, but because we take God seriously, uh, it means we take His Word seriously, uh, which is why we preach the way that we do, um, and I'm extremely thankful for that. It also means uh, that we don't get to skip the difficult sections of Scripture. Uh, it means that we will work through them and wade through them and see what God has for us in there. And, and this morning's text brings some difficult things. And so I just right off the get-go want to acknowledge uh, that the stories that we're going to see in these chapters this morning, it might bring up uh, some painful past experiences. And I, I want to just tell you that I'm extremely sorry uh, about that. And uh, they're, they're heartbreaking things that we're going to see, and my heart breaks for you if you've encountered situations or circumstances like this. And so my intention this morning is to try to be as pastoral and caring as possible. So in no way uh, do I want to have any kind of shock value or factor in that. That's not my intention at all. The brilliance of the Bible um, is that it's real, and it's filled with real people and real life um, and real situations, and oftentimes real life is very complicated and difficult and filled with pain. So in no way is my intention to drudge up shame uh, or pain from past experiences. All that stuff is, is real, but God, the two best words in the Scripture. Um, God is able to bring hope out of despair, beauty from ashes. We're going to see that. And we've got about six chapters to work through this morning, so obviously there's no way that I can read through uh, the entirety of that, so we're going to do kind of like a flyover, but I want to give you a, a homework assignment and just encourage you this week to read through 2 Samuel chapters 12 through 18 uh, and do kind of a deep dive on these, on these stories. And what we're going to see this morning in David's life, and we know this in our own life, is that sin, even though forgiven, it still carries with it consequences. And they can be painful, but we're going to see how grace and how Jesus has provided so that while painful, they're not devastating. The gospel is that Jesus was crushed by the penalty of our sin and rebellion so that we might not want to. And the tension that I want to hold this morning uh, is that I want to show the devastating consequences of sin and rebellion so that for some of you, this morning, it might serve as kind of a, a, a jolt or a warning that would bring you from the brink of disastrous decisions, but at the same time, uh, to give hope to those of you who are in the midst of painful circumstances and to show you how God can use and bring purpose out of the pain that His mercy, His goodness, His grace, and His love towards you is greater than that sin and that God restores and redeems and repairs even the consequences of our own foolishness for His glory and our greatest good. And if Jesus has conquered the grave and turned it into a garden, then He can bring forth beautiful stories out of our sinful choices and consequences. There's an author, his name's Jay Adams, and he has this quote where he says, sin complicates 
and grace simplifies. And I read that this week, and I thought that's exactly what we're going to see in David's life, that sin just brings so much complication. The grace of God simplifies in our life. Let's pray. Just ask God by His Spirit to help us this morning and so that we would clearly hear from Him. Father in heaven, we love you. And God, right now, would you just quiet our minds and our hearts? Um, God, even though we've had a moment of singing together, and God, we've already said true things about you, and um, God, who you are, we still are carrying with us uh, just thoughts of things that from this week or th- thoughts of things from even the week to come or even maybe even today. And so, God, would you allow us uh, to just be still and to know that you are God and to be still and to hear from you? God, would you quiet our minds, quiet our hearts, God, that we could be present to your word this morning? And God, I pray that we would have an awareness of your presence here this morning, that Holy Spirit, you would come and that you would move with freedom and with power. God, it's by your Spirit that you bring conviction where it's necessary. God, you bring comfort where we need it, encouragement where we need it. And so, God, I pray that we would just be open to receive all that you have for us. Holy Spirit, would you come and would you work and do what only you can do, God? Jesus, I'm so thankful for you and for the work that you have done on our behalf and for your, your cross that has bore the punishment and the penalty of our rebellion and for an empty grave and a promise of your return. So I pray that this time makes much of you, Jesus, and that's in your name we pray. Amen. So, Second uh, Samuel chapter 12, uh, and we'll, we'll just kind of do a brief recap. Last week, we looked at the story of David's sin with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, Uriah the Hittite. And in Second Samuel chapter 12, the prophet Nathan, he speaks for God, and he goes to David, and he says, listen, God has put away your sin. You will not die. There's grace there. However, David, there are consequences because of your rebellion and because of the sin that you have committed against Bathsheba and against Uriah. And he gives three things. He says in verse 10, chapter 12, he said, the sword shall never depart from your house. He says, verse 11, your wives are going to be unfaithful to you. And then verse 14, the son that's born to you from this affair with Bathsheba will die. And the next five chapters that we're going to look at are going to show us how all that stuff plays out. And before the end of chapter 12, David's newborn son is dead. It's one of the most painful moments in David's life, but the spiral actually turns more downward and more tragic. Um, The good news for some of you, if you think your family is really dysfunctional, you might actually leave today feeling better about them, seeing what David's family does, but in these chapters, there really is just one horrible thing after another. And we're going to see the pain of relational pain um, that sin causes, but we're going to see in a very real way the hope that we have as God works things together. So 2 Samuel chapter 13, David's firstborn son um, has developed an extremely perverse crush on his stepsister Tamar. That's where the story opens, and the Scripture says that He wants her so bad that he can't even eat. He's making himself sick. So Amnon, that's the son, he actually kind of schemes to create a scenario where he gets Tamar alone and he sexually assaults her. And then after that, he says in verse 15 of 2 Samuel 13, Amnon hated her with intense 
hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. Verse 16, no, she said to him, sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you've already done to me. But he refused to listen to her, and he called his personal servant. He said, get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door after her. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her, and she was wearing an ornate robe, for this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the kings wore. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornate robe that she was wearing, and she put her hands on her head and went away weeping aloud as she went. If you think back to David's affair with Bathsheba, you're going to see the pattern of what David has done be repeated in his kids. If you remember, David sees Bathsheba and he says, who is that? She's beautiful. And the servant says, uh, she's not yours. She's married. You know who her father is. David says, go get her for me. And he takes her and he does what he wants. He doesn't consider her or her family as real people. Remember, we talked about this last week. He depersons her, dehumanizes her. She's simply an object of his lust. And now, tragically, Amnon, David's son, is repeating his father's sin. What the father have sowed is harvested by the son. And David, who should be there protecting his daughter, correcting the son, is totally disconnected. He's actually there. He's in the story, but he's completely disconnected from what's happening with his kids. In fact, after he finds out about the rape of his daughter, he does nothing. In verse 21, it says that he's angry about it. He's furious about it, but he never deals with Amnon. And Tamar recognizes that her father is a is a just man. He knows what's right and he knows what's wrong. It's actually, she says that to Amnon in her exchange with him. She knows my dad is the, the one who defeated the giant. He's the hero, full of courage in battle. But he's not there for his little girl. And Absalom, who is Tamar's full brother, relationships get pretty complex when you have multiple wives, which is why we would encourage you not to do that. Um, Absalom he can't believe what's happened to his sister. He's furious. And he's even more furious that his father has not done anything about it. Absalom loves Tamar. He loves his sister. In fact, the Scripture tells us that she goes to live in his house after this event. He actually names one of his daughters, Tamar, after her. But because David is not doing anything about this, Absalom, the son, starts to plan revenge we, we say this a lot when we're reading through these narratives, but you need to put yourself into the story and try to get into the emotions and the feelings as painful as that will be this morning. But imagine the disappointment that Absalom is feeling. I've got a dad who will stand up to a giant, but he stays silent when it comes to defending his daughter. So Absalom begins kind of a two-year plan to take vengeance on Amnon, Look at verse 23. Two years later, Absalom's sheep shears were at Balhazar near the border of Ephraim, and he invited all the king's sons to come. And Absalom went to the king and he said, your servant has had shears come. Will the king and his attendants please join me? 
No, my son, the king, David, replied, all of us should not go. We'd only be a burden to you. Although Absalom urged him, he still refused to go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, well, if not, please let my brother Amnon come with us. And the king asked him, well, why do you want him to go? But Absalom urged him, so he sent with him Amnon, Amnon and the rest of the king's sons. And Absalom ordered his men, listen, when my brother Amnon is in high spirits from drinking wine, in other words, when he's drunk, and I say to you, strike Amnon down, kill him. And don't be afraid, because I've given you this order, be strong and brave. So Absalom's men did to Amnon what Absalom had ordered. And then all the king's sons got up and mounted their mules and fled. Again, it's important that you were here, listen, or know the story of David and Bathsheba. Because who does this sound like? Getting someone drunk, murdering them. Again, David's sins, the sins of the father, are being replicated in the life of his sons. Absalom kills Amnon, and then he goes on the run for like three years. And the whole time, David knows where he is, but he never sends for him. He never goes and, and tries to talk to him. He never tries to reach out to his son. So eventually, Joab, who is the captain of David's army, he comes to David and he says, let's go get Absalom, let's bring him back. And so David finally consents and lets Joab bring Absalom back. So go to 2 Samuel chapter 14. The king, verse 21, said to Joab, very well, I'll do it. Go bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell with his face to the ground to pay honor to him, and he blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that he has found favor in your eyes, my lord, the king, because the king has granted his servant's request. Then Joab went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. But the king said, He must go to his own house. He must not see my face. Meaning, he can come back, but I don't want anything to do with him. I don't, I don't even want to see his face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the face of the king. In the story, and again, you have to go back and read it, Joab kind of sets up this theater presentation and makes this whole presentation to David about how uh, he should bring back his banished son. And so Absalom does come back, but he's like, look, he's got to go live in his own house, and I don't want to see him. And so he does. He, he doesn't see Absalom for two years because sin complicates relationships. Absalom, for sure has done wrong. But if you zoom out and you look at what's happening here, he's acting out of love for his sister and out of what he thought was justice. It's sin. Murder is sin. But the reason that he's doing it is because he felt like his dad, well, he, his dad wasn't doing anything. He needed his father's counsel. He needed his father's instruction but he gets silence. He needed a dad who would embrace him and welcome him in and even listen to his side of the story. But instead, his dad won't even look at him. And so Absalom, this young man, for two years processes his pain. He processes his sin. He processes his own shame in solitude and silence. There's a lesson for us men in the room, or if you're listening online. Our greatest pitfall, men, in our calling as husbands and our calling as fathers is not going to be just outright wickedness, but our apathy. 
And you actually see it in the very beginning in the Scriptures because God puts man in the garden. And he gives him instruction. He's like, this is yours to subdue, to cultivate, to work hard, to be creative in your work. And then he gives him a helpmate, Eve. The word literally means, Adam, you can't do this without her. You can't survive without her. I thought there'd be like an amen from a wife or something out there, but um, thank you. You can't fulfill God's call without Eve is essentially what he says. And your job, Adam, is to protect and to provide and lead. And the way that you lead is by laying down your life for her so that she can flourish. The serpent comes to test Eve and the, and the way that the Hebrew is written indicates that Adam is right there. It's not like Adam was afar off. Adam was right there when this is happening. And he passively lets her take the first bite. Adam is there. The serpent tempts with the fruit. And Adam's thinking, God said, if you eat it, you'll die. So I'll let her go first. She doesn't die. And he's like, all right, I guess I will. Where he should have offered protection where he should have been present, he was passive. It's why when God comes looking for them, he calls out in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, he calls out for Adam. Adam, where are you? Adam, where were you? There are plenty of places, men, where we will have sins of commission, but like Adam, we're also guilty of sins of omission where we should be spiritual leaders leading the way and sacrificing and shepherding the hearts of our spouses and our children. But like Adam, like David here, we're absent. In the uh, American evangelical church, women make up 61% of those who attend. Uh, on the foreign mission field, particularly in places that are the most dangerous or the most difficult, women outpace men three to one in those places of service. I have a, a friend, her name is Desi. She's a member of an evangelical Protestant church in, in Italy. Um, and she is a, she's a middle-aged single woman who God called to the Central African Republic, the most dangerous country on our planet. There's a group of Catholic nuns who had a convent in this village. When civil war broke out, the nuns all left um, and so uh, this church that Desi is from, actually Redemption kind of helped to per make this purchase, bought this home. And so Desi moved into this village all by herself. It's a village in Bimbo, Central African Republic. And she began to do a remodeling work on this home all by herself. She had some help from some people in the village, but she built this home out uh, to care for uh, orphan children and to care for pregnant women because the mortality rate is just off the charts high. We're actually going to have an opportunity to bless Desi and get, maybe get more of her story for our Advent offering this year. But she's there all by herself. I, and a couple of years ago, I was actually in Italy. She was home visiting some family, and uh, I was having lunch with her. And, and I will never forget this because she was talking about, yes, it is. It's very difficult. She's there by herself. It's an extremely dangerous country. Um, oftentimes, there's no electricity. Oftentimes, there's just a, a bunch of challenges. And she said to me, she's like, you know, I wish I could just be home here in Napa eating pizza all the time. That's what I want to do. But God won't let me. She said, I don't know what to tell you, but God has just called me to that place and to those people, and I just can't say no. 
You, you talk about a boss. You, you, you talk about a leader. And, and man, I'm not saying that we all have to go to a place like that. Maybe more of a should. But we all have work that God has given us in our marriages and in our families and in our relationships and in our own vocation where we are. But there are countless times, men, where we let someone else or something else fill that spot. We, we let youth sports fill that spot or academics fill that spot or social media fill that spot or any other number of things will fill that spot where we are supposed to be discipling particularly our children and our homes and our families. And, and listen, I'm not against that stuff necessarily. Please don't get it twisted. My kids are in sports. But I also realize there's an extremely small chance that my kids are going to play sports professionally. That's on me. I'm sorry, kids. But there is a 100% chance that one day they will stand before God. And so I need to evaluate, what am I preparing my children for? Because discipleship is effective. Discipleship works. What, who is discipling my kids? And I know that there are strong and super capable women and mothers, and I'm so thankful for that, and I celebrate that. The reason I'm speaking to the dads is because so, much, so often the Scripture speaks to, to men when it talks about parenting. And I'm very convicted by this. I do not want to be preaching this point right now. And we said in Preaching Collective that for younger guys with younger kids, it's really easy to stand up here and talk a big game because parenting is extremely difficult. And I'm not trying to pile on if you're an older man with older children. I'm just personally challenged by this. And it's difficult for me, my, my wife and kid go to school here, or go to church here. So I need to heed this. But I was thinking about this this week. I was like, you know what? You guys can get another pastor, but they only have one of me. And so men, let's take what we see in David seriously, and let's take our role in discipling our families in the way of Jesus seriously. All right. Going to get off of that soapbox, lest it crush me even anymore. So, 2 Samuel chapter uh, 14, verse 29. So, Absalom, he's been trying to get David's attention through Joab, but Joab doesn't send the messages along. So, then Absalom's like, okay, here's what I got to do. I got to get my dad's attention. Joab's not sending the messages. I got to get through to him. So, in verse 29 of chapter 14, Absalom sent for Joab in order to send, to send him to the king, but Joab refused to come to him, so he sent a second time he refused to come. Then, then he said to his servants, so this is what Absalom does, he goes, look, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. What is Absalom doing? Is he just like a maniac? He's trying to get his dad's attention. Like when a kid burns his parents' garage down. <laughs> Got to be here last week. Um, parents, it might be time to start paying attention to your kids who are burning fields. David does allow uh, Absalom back into his presence, but things are still not quite right. They don't really address it. They don't really talk about it. They do what most families do. They just kind of gloss over it, ignore it, move on. 
And Absalom is not settled. He begins to plot against his father David. He's going to take the kingdom from him. A few things that you need to know about Absalom that are important for the rest of the story. First of all, he's good looking. I can relate. He is the most handsome man in Israel. Chapter 14 says that. I don't know if they had a contest or what, but he won it. He also has beautiful long hair. Overrated. He would get a he would get a haircut once a year, the scripture says, and when they did, it weighed like five pounds. So he's got, he's like the Fabio of that day. Um, I don't know, is Fabio even still, is that that's a pretty bad reference? Um, so in chapter 15, Absalom, he starts this kind of like sneaky rebellion. The people are going to talk to Absalom about their problems, and Absalom is like, listen, my heart breaks for you. I'm for you. Don't you wish you could talk to the king? Don't you wish you could talk to my dad? Too bad he's not around. Guess what? He wasn't around for me either. And so the scripture says he starts to win the hearts of the people, and he starts to slowly turn the hearts of the people against his father. He's good looking. He's empathetic. He uh, is showing kind of leadership to, to these people. And then in, in chapter 15, verse 6, it says that Absalom, he starts to steal their hearts and then he stages a coup and he drives David from the palace. And then as a show of power, he sets up a pavilion on the roof of his father's home and he sleeps with David's wives and concubines that have been left at the palace as a way to humiliate his father and to show everyone that he has taken his father's kingdom. Do you see what's happening here? Absalom steals from David, sleeps with his wives on the roof of his own house, repeating the sins of the father. The very place where David uh, hatched his sin with Bathsheba, Absalom is sleeping with David's women. And at the end of chapter 15, David, the giant killer, the hero. He slayed his ten thousands. He's running away. He's running up the Mount of Olives, out of the holy city. In fact, in chapter 16, there's an interesting scene. I think we have enough time for it. David's on the run, and there's a guy named Shimei who is a relative of Saul. He starts attacking David. And I'm not going to read the, the scripture, but you can read it. He, he basically starts hurling insults as David and his men are walking towards the, uh, the Mount of Olives. Shimmy kind of comes up alongside of him and he starts cursing at them and he's hurling insults at them and he starts throwing rocks at them. Uh, and, and Abishai, who is one of David's mighty men, he's one of David's warriors, he's like, who is this guy? I'm going to go cut his head off. I'm like, Abishai, I like your style, man. He's like, we are not going to put up with this. And David, David, it's such a weird moment because David says, no, I deserve that. God probably told him to do that to me. God probably told him to shame me and to attack me and to curse me. Let him do it. Let him keep throwing rocks at me. Let him keep hurling insults at me. That's what I, it's what I deserve. And I think sometimes when we fail, when we sin, that's how we feel. All that's coming against me, I deserve it. This is what is supposed to happen to me. God is sovereign. I, this punishment is, is, is mine. This humiliation should be mine. 
But David is forgetting what Nathan said over him. Your sin has been put away. You've been washed clean. David writes Psalm 51 after his sin with Bathsheba. Psalm 51 says this, Cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me, I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit with me. Don't cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing out of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I'd bring it. You don't delight or you don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God. You will not despise. He, He sings about his experience with God of being washed clean, but here he's living out of guilt and he's living out of condemnation, even though God has said through Nathan and, and God has said to David, and David sings about it, you've been washed clean. Now let's finish the story. David, eventually, he's able to muster enough of an army to take back his kingdom, and Absalom and his followers are driven out into the wilderness. There's this battle that rages. In, in chapter 18, David says this as they're pursuing Absalom. He says this, The king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, Be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king give orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. So the battle is on, but watch what happens. David's army marched out of the city to fight Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. And there Israel's troops were routed by David's men, and the casualties that day were great, 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside, and the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. Now Absalom happened to meet David's men. So Absalom is on the run from David's soldiers. He was riding his mule, and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree. So kind of get the visual. Mule is running. Go underneath a low branch. His hair gets caught by the tree, and he's left hanging in midair while the mule kept riding and going. When one of the men saw what happened, he told Joab, I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. And Joab said to the man who told him this, you saw him? Why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? I would have given you 10 shekels of silver and a warrior's belt. The man replied, even a thousand shekels were weighed out into my hands. I would not lay a hand on the king's son. In our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, protect the young man Absalom for my sake. And if I put my life in jeopardy and nothing is hidden from the king, you would have kept your distance from me. And Joab says, well, I'm not going to wait like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand and he plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree defenseless, hanging by his hair. And 10 of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. As the chapter ends, there's messengers who are running from the battle back to the king and they're giving updates on what's happening in the battle. And every time David is saying, well, what, what is it, uh, what's happening with the young man Absalom? The, the messengers are coming back. They're like, we're winning, sire. We're winning. The battle is going good. We're wiping everybody out. And David just says, well, what about the young man Absalom? What about the young man Absalom? 
Finally, there's an Ethiopian messenger, the Cushite, who arrives and he says, My Lord, the king, hear the good news. The Lord has vindicated you today by delivering you from the hand of all who rose up against you. And the king asked the Cushite, Is the young man Absalom safe? And the Cushite replied, May the enemies of the Lord, the king, and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. And the king was shaken. And he went up to the room over the gateway and he wept. And as he wept, he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son, shaken. The crushing reality of what sin does to you and what it does to all of those around you shakes you. It carries with it, it's the idea if you've ever had that feeling when you heard that somebody close to you or somebody that you loved had just died and you understand the finality of that relationship, you're shaken. And when something is repeated in the Hebrew Scripture, it's to signify intensity. And here in this verse, my son is said five times. David is shaken to his core with grief. He's undone. He's no doubt flooded with all the memories of Absalom as a young boy when they would play on the floor together, when they would wrestle together, when he would teach him how to ride and how to fight, when they would go on walks together and Absalom would cheer his heart. And he's thinking about all the missed opportunities, all the things that he should have said that he never did, and all the things that he'll never be able to tell his son that he wanted to. It's interesting, in verse 33, for the first time in all of these chapters, David uses the word son for Absalom, because up until this time, he's always just referred to him as young man, the young man Absalom. How is the young man Absalom? And what the narrator is trying to tell us and trying to bring us into is that David now in this moment, he's feeling all the feelings of a dad. And it's too late. And the tragic story of David and his son Absalom is over. I am sorry that all this is so heavy. Sometimes the Bible is just like that. Brene Brown's an author, and she has this quote. She says, I, I came to church thinking that faith would be like an epidural, something that would take all the pain away. But I found out that faith is more like a midwife, a nurturing partner who leans into the pain with me. And I feel like the scriptures are often like that. We're expecting it's just going to, we're going to read it, and it'll just block all the pain. And sometimes there are verses, and sometimes there are places in the scripture where God just does that. But a lot of times it is like this where it helps us to work through the painful thing so that something good will be birthed in us and out of us. So what are we meant to take away from this? And we'll just quickly just look at what we see here. Clearly, clearly what we pull from this passage is that the consequences of sin that are, are deep and heavy, and that should bring conviction, that should bring caution to us. And yes, men, there is a lesson for us to learn in terms of being proactive in our families, but we can't really step into those lessons without understanding the deeper meaning of these stories and really the deeper meaning of this whole series. And, and some of you are, you're dealing with consequences of your sin. That's just the reality that you, that you sit in. And in, 
in essence, we really are all dealing with the consequences of sin because we live in a world that's broken and under the curse of sin. We get hurt, we get sick, we die. And some of you are suffering the direct consequences of your sin this morning. A marriage that is over, an estranged relationship with a son or daughter, physical pain because of substance abuse, financial hardship because of greed or coveting. Those are all real and they're all painful. But you see, Jesus took the ultimate penalty for that in that He took the sting out of it on the cross. The same word to David is the same word to the Christ follower. You will not die. Goodness and God's mercy will follow you all the days of your life, working for your ultimate good, not against you. And so if your faith and your trust is in Christ alone, your sin and rebellion does not have the final word in your story. And your identity... If you are a Christian, your identity is not your divorce or your affair or the debt or your dishonesty or your addiction or your temper or your insecurity or even the sin that has been committed against you. If you are in Christ, the Scripture promises us and tells us you have a new identity. You have a new reality. Those mo- those, there are things that you have done. But in the gospel, God speaks a better, truer word over you. Martin Luther has a quote where he talks about this. This is a very long quote, but it's very good. He says this, Others, or even my own sin, might tell me that I'm a failure, an idiot, a clown, evil, incompetent, vicious, dangerous, pathetic. And these words are not just descriptive. They have a certain power to make me these things in the eyes of others and even in my own eyes. As self-doubt creeps in and the devil whispers in my ear, but God's word speaks louder and his word is more powerful. You may call me liar and you speak truth for I have lied, but if God declares me righteous, then my lies and your insult are not the final word nor the most powerful word. I have peace in my soul because God's word is real reality. That's why I need to read the Bible each day, to hear the Word preached each week, to come to God in prayer, and to hear words of grace from other brothers and sisters as I seek to speak the same to them. Only as God speaks His Word to me and as I hear the Word in faith is my reality transformed and do the insults of others, of my own sinful nature and of the evil one himself, cease to constitute my reality. And then he ends with this. He says, the words of my enemies, external and internal, might be powerful like a moment. Listen to this picture. Like a firework exploding against the night sky. But the word of the Lord is stronger and brighter and it lasts forever. Allow the grace of God to free you from the paralysis of guilt. The band's going to come up. We're going to close. We're going to enter into a moment of communion. Because there are many of us where you're listening to this, and there is a lie from the pit of hell that says, well, you are like David's kids. You grew up in a family of unhealth and sin and dysfunction, and you are destined to carry that same pattern. If you are in Christ... Embrace what God has remade in the gospel and experience how He breaks the curse of generational sin. 
The grace of God, His purpose is greater than your past failures, and it breaks the power of generational sin. What we are ultimately seeing in these stories through kings like Saul and David and even Absalom for a little bit today is that these kings are not what we need. The king that we need, the father that we need is like David, but is so, so much more a king and a father who prevailed in all the places that David failed. The difference, of course, is that our heavenly father is perfect in every way. And Jesus showed us the love of the father where David failed to show love to his son. We are like Absalom in many ways. We rebel against our Father to steal and to take for ourselves, and we've brought humiliation and shame on the rooftops of our lives. When Absalom came home, David wouldn't even look at him or speak to him. Jesus tells the story, I won't tell it again, but I do love it. Your heavenly Father is the one who runs out to embrace, embrace you when you come home from making a wreck of everything. And the scripture says he throws the biggest party and he gives you all the best stuff that he has. The only reason the prodigal son doesn't speak is because he can't get a word in edgewise over the tears and the laughter and the forgiveness that are pouring out from the Father. David fled from his son up the Mount of Olives, away from Jerusalem and away from danger. Jesus ran to us, his estranged sons and daughters, down the Mount of Olives, into Jerusalem, into danger, to rescue you and to rescue me. David could not save Absalom's life, and he cried out over his son. Jesus, the Son of God, cried out to the Father for the forgiveness of all the sons and daughters who would cling to the cross of Christ. David could not die in place of his son. But Jesus did die in our place, doing for the sons and the daughters of God what David could not do for his. Absalom died in a tree with a spear in his side for his rebellion. Jesus died on a tree with a spear in his side for your rebellion and for mine. Jesus is the true and better king. He's the real king. Eternally before our heavenly father is our redeemer and our savior and our advocate. And our search for a king in this life ends in him. And when we see that, when we come to that realization by faith, because of the grace of what Jesus has done, we take the elements that are there in your chair, the bread and the cup, and we eat and we drink deeply of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior King, the true and better King who offers grace and mercy, who on the cross absorbed the shame and the guilt and the humiliation for your sin and for mine. And if you are a Christian here this morning, eat and drink and let the bread and the cup, the body and the blood of Jesus be the final word over your sin and the final word over who you are in Christ. Let's do that together now.